You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing this week? Hey, Robert. I'm doing I'm doing okay this week. Um, yeah? Lots of good and, and some grief, too, but kind of trying to hold mm. it all together this week. Yeah. So, yeah, not hold it all together like I've got it all together. Hold it all together like, you know, just trying to hold – all of it, all the emotions. So right, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear, obviously, some some grief, but also, you know, good about glad about the good things and yeah, um, you know, all of that. I know, kind of holding those things in tension can be pretty hard. For sure, yes, for sure. We um we had to say goodbye to um our our dog Lucy last week, who we've had her. Um, as part of our family for about 11 years, she was 12 years old and, um, and it was time, but, um, that is not a type of pain or grief that our family has walked through. And so we're kind of navigating it together and just, you know, taking each day, one day at a time and just kind of holding space for that. So, so that's been, you know, so that's been happening this last week. Um, But, you know, and then then there's good stuff too. So like this morning, I just – I know this will come out on Monday, but I just sent out my first newsletter. Um, mm-hmm. So that was fun and it's been neat kind of getting a bunch of feedback from folks and just what they're appreciating of it and what they're hoping for. And so that's been fun. So – yeah. Anyways. Well, good. I'm glad. I know last week we mentioned that, that people could go and sign up for that. So yeah. if you uh, are listening and you heard that and you thought, oh, that sounds interesting, you can go and still sign up for Holly's newsletter. You absolutely. can get the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's been fun. But what about you? How how are you doing this week? Pretty good, I think. I mean, I was I was looking, you know, a lot oftentimes before we hop on, I kind of open my calendar and yeah. scroll back through and think like, oh, what's, you know, what happened in the past week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think anything, you know, particularly noteworthy or at least interesting in terms of, you know, discussion for the beginning yeah. of this show. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's been kind of a uh, normal standard with obviously a couple exceptions that aren't, you know, necessarily like mine to talk about publicly. Yeah. 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 Like for that. sure. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I was just asking uh, a friend of mine, what, what good small talk questions do you <laughs> have to for me to bring in this conversation mm. right here. So, yeah. Well, but I know this week too, we have a pretty long conversation with our guests this week. So it might be okay to not have a ton of um, small talk this week. I mean, we can fill in our listeners on some more things um, next week, if that sounds okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. I know actually tomorrow I'm going to, tomorrow from the time we're recording this, yeah. which obviously happened before this episode comes out, but I can't talk about it yet, but there'll be. I'm going to a training tomorrow that I think is going to be really interesting. So, check in on that next week or whatever. Yes, I can't wait to hear about it next week. I know you told me a little bit about it, and the more I've dug into it, I am so excited to get to learn what you get to learn during tomorrow's (laughs) workshop. So that'll be fun. So yeah, that's awesome. Well, in uh, the long-standing tradition of our fantastic segues here (laughs) on show someone who also enjoys that type of stuff right it's a training on polyvagal might as well mm-hmm. there you go um but someone who also enjoys that is 
Dr. Jerome, right? Mm -hmm. Who our guest last week. And we had such a good time with that conversation that we thought, hey, we wanna we wanna have you back on as quickly as kind of we can so that we can get into a lot of the like rubber meets the road details. Yeah. Because last time we talked a lot from a broad perspective. And so that's the, what this episode is, mm-hmm. is Jerome comes back on and we talk about the things that we talked about last time, right? Neuroscience, the Enneagram, mm-hmm. uh, identity, spirituality, right? But we really dig into what does it look like? What's the practicality of how those things can help us to grow and care for ourselves and all that type of stuff in like very practical, tangible ways? Yeah. No, I I thought – I think there's a lot of good and a lot of takeaways that are kind of – embedded and threaded throughout this episode. So I'm really excited for our listeners to get to hear this one. I think there we had some good questions in there too that I haven't always heard really helpful answers to. And I think he addressed them in really strong and concrete ways. So anyways, I'm really excited for our, our listeners to get to hear this one. Yeah. What I will ask of our listeners is this may be one I wouldn't necessarily put on a 1.5 speed as you're listening to it. Even though it's a little bit longer, this is the one that I would keep on a on a regular speed. So just to yeah. kind of soak up as much as he's got in this one. So anyways. Yeah. Anyways, I outed myself. I do that a lot. <laughs> Putting, yeah, yeah. Here, I know some people do that. And as you were saying that, I thought that didn't even occur to me because I've never done that. Oh, though. yeah. <laughs> no, I totally do that. Sometimes. Fun. Yeah. Anyways. All right. Well, we will get out of the way and we hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Jerome Libba. Hey, today we are so excited to be joined once again by Dr. Jerome Libba. Uh, We'll skip most of his bio because we just had him on. If you want to hear more about his background, his story, a lot of his work, I definitely recommend you check out the last episode that we did with him. We dug deep into that, got his whole life story, which is really interesting, and then got kind of into a a high level of things. And today we're going to, I think, try and get a little bit more into the weeds of it. So Jerome, how are you doing today? Man, I am trying to practice what I preach and all of the things that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it is, uh, I always joke with folks, every morning I wake up, I'm a patient first and a doctor second. And that allows me to stay in a headspace where I'm being conscientious of my own rest. And today uh, I am feeling better than I have uh, for most of the last five weeks of this year. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to say today is a good day. Oh, good. Yeah, we're good. glad to hear that. Yeah. And thank you for coming back on. So hey, soon. Thank, thank you for having me. I, I, I'm, I'm, it's such a, such a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as Robert had mentioned in our last episode, we talked much more about kind of this high level overview of a number of topics. And we talked about functional neurology, how neuropsych uh, shapes our identity how neuroscience and the Trinity kind of map out onto the Enneagram. And we kind of just started to talk a little bit about self-care. But what we really do want to do this week is kind of dive in a little bit more deeply, especially around the areas of the Enneagram and self-care. So, you know, we've referred to a couple of episodes that we did before talking about the Enneagram. But Robert and I have both kind of, we kind of agree that you approach each of the different types in a different way compared to perhaps some others who are writing about this. So kind of before we jump in, do you mind just briefly unpacking each of these types and 
your approach to the Enneagram overall? So it's a great question, Ali. I think the, the biggest difference from a high-level perspective that, that people are seeing with my approach to the Enneagram that's different is first and foremost, helping everybody understand that they are not a number, that I think all nine numbers are simultaneously working together in terms of our, our experience as a human being. It's kind of like saying, I've got muscles in my legs that work different than muscles in my arms, but all of them together help me walk. And they're all integrated, but they serve different purposes. So one of the language uh, changes is changing from saying, I am a person to I have a high efficiency in the following nature or capacity of a human being. Uh, so what I'll do to go through all of the numbers really quickly is just give you what the human capacity is, what the motivation is, and what the gift is of each number. Ooh, okay. And changing that from folks thinking, okay, well, I, I live exclusively, like I, I score highest on a two. So normally somebody would say, I am a helper. And if I have a wing, then I become a uh, servant or a host. Uh, and I think that that's far too limiting. So moving into, I can demonstrate efficiency in the following area. I'm motivated and value and prioritize the following things. And that allows me to develop a skill and a gift in the following way. So we'll go through those quick for each one. Um, so starting with a five, a five is a natural human capacity for investigation and also observation. Because if you see anybody that does research, uh, investigation is the generally the on-ramp, and then you do the research, and observation is, is what you do during and after. So a lot of people sometimes wrestle with, am I an investigator or an observer? Well, in research, which is really one of the gifts of a five, uh, you're doing both. So you don't have to pick and choose one. Um, but the, the motivation and, and the priority for a five space is really that they are seeking clarity. They want to be able to understand the information that they have in the world. And that allows them to develop the gift and a skill in achieving and finding insights. So the nature of a five is investigation or the capacity for investigation. The motivation is seeking clarity and the gift or skill is insight. The six is the human capacity for exercising loyalty. And in that loyalty, what somebody who's efficient in a six space is doing is they're seeking out guarantees. And synonyms for guarantees are reliability, integrity, security, concreteness, uh, you know, the things that allow somebody to know that things are going to be stable. Uh, and the more that you exercise the gift and the natural capacity or the natural capacity for loyalty and you're seeking guarantees, uh, you're able to develop a high degree of, com of, of courage. Uh, and the biggest thing with a six to see why courage is so important is sixes kind of sometimes get stereotyped as the chicken little or the fearful person in the conversation. Uh, but the reality is you can't engage in something with courage in the absence of fear. You have to have fear in that environment. So sixes can naturally be the most courageous people in the room because they're fully aware of what could go wrong and they choose to engage anyways or to stay and to, to not retreat. So the natural capacity of a six is loyalty. They're seeking and motivated by uh, guarantees and that's what they prioritize and their gift is courage. Um, seven is a human capacity for enthusiasm or excitement or adventure, um, but especially enthusiasm. And they're motivated by, and somebody who's efficient in a seven is, is seeking out different experiences. So they want to be enthusiastic, but they want to have a variety of experiences. And that variety of experiences uh, allows them to develop the gift and, and the skill of, for inspiration. 
So not only are they constantly seeking what inspires them, but they can inspire other people because they're really energetic and they're really life-giving and they're very enthusiastic and they can be very, very uh, charismatic, which also lends itself to the three space as well. And so that five, six, and seven are all in the head triad, which is correlated with thinking and with mental health and with the idea of the left brain and future forecasting and kind of analytic linear, linear processing. But more than anything, you see the difference in a five being the person who's asking questions about the data and the seven asking questions about what you're going to do. So similar real estate, very different approaches, but the motivations are different. Five wants clarity, six wants guarantees, seven wants experiences. And that's all in the, the head triad. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, totally makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay, to go through the gut and the heart? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the gut is eight, nine, and one. And the gut is more associated neurologically with the brainstem and the body and our somatic experiences and our, our brainstem health. So anybody who looks up polyvagal therapy, uh, that's really heavily exercised specifically in a nine. Uh, which is why you can see some nines are so efficient at withdrawal and retreat and even hibernation because they're resting too much sometimes. Uh, and But you see a lot of the, the interaction between fight, flight, or freeze systems and rest and digest systems in, in the gut because it's a body-based experience. Um, but the eight is the human capacity for disruption or for change. Sometimes it's called challenge. I think a healthier version of that is how do we all encounter or experience disruption and change. Uh, because that number is efficient and motivated in seeking out autonomy or independence or freedom. Uh, and because it's that space as a human being that allows us to deal with change and disruption and to find independence, the gift of an eight naturally is growth. Uh, because there, you can't grow a muscle and you can't grow any kind of plant or any kind of environmental space without dealing with the tension of the environmental spaces. Uh, and to build stamina and strength, you have to be able to to deal with the, the tension in the space and the conflict in the space. And there's so many nuances to that. Um, the nine is a natural human capacity for peace. And when we're looking at peace and trying to discover and, and, and search out and seek peace, what we're actually looking for specifically is serenity. And serenity is the absence of conflict. It's the presence of lucidity and placidity, basically meaning the nine wants to rest, but in that restness be in that restfulness be still and to have things uninterrupted and undisrupted. Uh, so that really helps to be able to say, okay, what does it look like for me to exercise the gift of a nine, which is rest? Because if I've got the natural capacity for peace and I'm seeking out spaces that are undisturbed, then that allows me to rest really well. And that's the gift of a nine. The one space is the natural human capacity for reformation or reiteration to try things over and over again and, and to make them better and to, to reform them and reshape them for, for a better outcome. So somebody who's efficient in a one energy is seeking out justice to make things better, to correct things, to fix things that are broken and to change the dynamic from something that's incorrect to making it correct or justified. Um, easy visual for that is when you use a word processor and you justify something, when you click that button, it moves it all to the left, all to the right. Or when you center justify, it evenly spaces every word out. And visually, that's what a lot of ones are trying to do in their life or somebody who's efficient in a one is they're just trying to make sure everything feels aligned and right, uh, especially in their own body and in their, their immediate space. So their efficiency, their, their efficiency is in uh, reformation or fixing things. They're motivated in seeking out 
making sure things are justified and aligned, but that gives them the profound gift uh, of agency or advocacy, uh, not only, you know, advocating for other people around them, but also considering, you know, advocating for a practical step and a, a practical way to do things, to make things better. Um, and that gives you everything in the, in the gut triad. The, the last triad is a two, three, and four. Uh, the two is known normally as a helper. I refer to it as a natural human capacity for nurturing and nurturing for fostering and, and kind of tending to things and helping them to, to grow in healthy ways, uh, but more relationally than practically like the eight. Um, and when you're motivated and you're kind of seeking out or you're, you're exercising efficiency and, and being a nurturer or nurturing things, uh, then you're seeking out appreciation. Like what matters to you? What, what is attractive? What is something that you want to build value in? What is something that you want to appreciate and you want to be appreciated for? So twos are the natural capacity for nurturing. They're motivated and seeking out appreciation or to increase value. And that allows them to really effectively develop the gift or to exercise the muscle related to unconditional love. Um, somebody who's really efficient in a two is profoundly capable of having wide open arms to accept any relationship. Uh, and we can even talk about later in the self-care piece, every single aspect and every single number has a pro and a con, depending on its utilization. And sometimes the law of diminishing returns for twos is they don't set conditions in their relationships. And because they don't have healthy boundaries, they can sometimes overextend themselves because they're unconditional in their love, which is a great attribute. But sometimes self-care requires you to set healthy boundaries and set certain conditions that are good self-care. So the two is the natural capacity for nurturing, motivated by appreciation, and their gift is unconditional love. Given that everyone on the call is a two, I need you to make it a little easy. <laughs> I know. Down. I know. Personally attacking oh, everyone. Oh God, that's okay. I, yeah. I, I, you kind of, I appreciate the fact that you self-identified because the the subtlety of a two, yeah. is that they're pretty good at sub, they're pretty good at subterfuge. And if you notice, that's the only one that I gave the caveat to because I knew that was for all three of us. <laughs> so. I, I appreciate you proving my point without having to do anything for it. But yes, uh, we, we can all, we can all, uh, we can all commiserate or commiserate, or we can also uh, collaboratively love each other well into spaces of, uh, of moving into both four and eight, which is being authentic Amen. about what's uncomfortable and ha yep. helping us to grow. So that's good. I appreciate that. So thank that's you for interrupting awesome. and pointing that out. That's good. Yeah. Uh, which is why it leads into it leads into why twos are so also very comfortable with leaning into three as a wing, uh, because I believe we float into both wings. I think we not only function in all the subtypes, but all of the natures and all of the wings and all of the triads, because a human being has so much going on in their system. To assume that we can't do that is really unfortunately minimizing the capacity of the human condition. Uh, and the human, the human being as a whole. So I think the more that we learn we're capable of, the more it honors what we are capable of. So that being said, a three, which is also something that all three of us have uh, language and experience around, is the natural human capacity for achievement or for success or for goal setting. And somebody who's efficient in achievement or pursuing something that they can they can create and achieve is exercising and motivating uh, or is motivated by the ability to exercise creativity and the difference between creativity and a three and a four which a lot of people will contest is a three actually has to make something they have to create something because you can't be measured by something that no one else can see and no one else can weigh and measure so the creativity in a three is tied to that root word of creation because they've achieved something 
outside of themselves. And oftentimes threes will do that because they want somebody to see what's outside of them. Because if they knew what was truly them or inside of them, it may not be as valuable or as uh, successful, right? So the natural efficiency of a three is achievement and they're motivated by creativity or creation or producing. Uh, and that's because their gift, which can be both a pro and a con, is confidence. Um, most people who are efficient in three are naturally good at confidence. Uh, so you get all three of those things in terms of achievement, creativity, and confidence in somebody who's efficient in a three. And the last one, which is the four, is the natural human capacity for individuality. And individuality, especially as an identical twin, it's a very nuanced thing. But when you're looking at your own individuality or you're respecting the individuality of another person, because there's different degrees of relationship dynamics, internal and external, um, the person who's efficient in a four is saying, I want to find and I'm motivated and I seek out authenticity. I want to know what's real. I want to know what's true. And I want to know how that particular thing, especially in relationship, what's true about it, what's, what makes it unique, what makes it individual. And in that space, when you're efficient in individuality or, or being able to see the uniqueness in relationships and you're motivated by authenticity, when you're able to hold that space, it gives you the natural gift of compassion because you're able to recognize and sit with somebody in something and see everything it had to go through to become what it is. So the beauty in seeing the individuality and the authenticity of a particular thing or person or what it the, the relationship is with itself and with other interactions, the compassion is being able to sit with the difficult things that allowed it to grow into who it is, but also to see the beauty in it, because it's a little bit of, of both, obviously, in both of those spaces. And that gives you all nine numbers in terms of the last three, two, three, and four were the heart triad. And when you look at all of those together, the head, the heart, and the gut are also ways of saying uh, mind for the head, body for the gut, soul for the heart, or how we think, feel, and act. We think in our heads, we feel in our hearts, and we act or react in our guts. And that kind of gives you the whole experience mm. as a human being, uh, mm. as well as all of the other spaces that people can reflect on in the in the last podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. That was really good. Yeah. So that's a quick and dirty Enneagram explanation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I have two follow-up highlights. Um, one is the the thesaurus exercise right that you write about in this book because some people are probably listening and going hey you just like made up new words for these things that have you know kind of formal labels or whatever right can you talk some about the yeah. why you kind of feel okay putting new words to it and then the, mm -hmm. the thesaurus exercise yeah yeah you know I'll, I'll have to give it in context of my lived experience um because that would be the most truthful answer Growing up in, in a hyper-charismatic and Pentecostal space and becoming a chronic pain patient who went to some of the most educated clinicians on the planet, uh, I went to 21 specialists over nine years and all of that lived experience. Um, in my world as a believer and as a doubter and as a patient and as a doctor and as a clinician in all of these spaces, I kept running into these spaces where everybody had really, really good definitions but it didn't work practically and it wasn't providing any kind of outcome for me. And I ended up with a, with a phrase that I, I, I've used for a lot of years, which was faith is good, but fruit is better. And I kept getting into these situations where people were giving me really, really, really refined and defined answers, but I wasn't feeling any different. So I kept looking at that, especially when I encountered the Enneagram world and going, I've had enough experience with what somebody considers to be the gospel truth 
spiritually, clinically, and from the Enneagram world. But the more distilled it is and the more refined it is and the more constrictive it is, uh, I think that ends up sometimes creating situations where somebody enters into an environment that's inflexible and it doesn't really accommodate the nuance of what each individual person is experiencing. Uh, Especially when I learned about neuroplasticity and I'm like, we're different people than we were when we started this conversation 20 minutes ago. Like literally, I'm a different human being. So if I'm that dynamic, then I feel like the language should be dynamic as well. You know, my older brother has a great saying that language drives culture. And if I don't have a healthy language about what my experience is as a person, then I have to wonder what my own culture is in terms of my experience as a lived person. Um, And for me, it was looking at that going, I, I also have a huge aversion to being a helper who is a host. That's my confirmation bias. A two with a three wing is known as a helper who becomes a host, a two with a three wing. And that felt really patronizing for me. So a lot of the language around the Enneagram that existed, I think, was really effective at kind of landing somebody into a particular space. But one of the things that I kept seeing come up was there's a lot of shame and a lot of insufficiency and a lot of patronizing language, a lot of stereotypes and a lot of reductive language that feels really constrictive. And I looked at that and said, I think the core of this, I think the capacity, I think the opportunity and the potential, kind of like DNA becoming epigenetics, right? Like DNA has a baseline structure, but it can become a a multitude of things based on what the environment requires of it. So if we looked at the words in the Enneagram and said, is there a way that I can introduce a philosophy that says this language can be changed, but the core intent remain the same, what would be a way to do that? And the thesaurus exercise came out of that in saying, what would it look like to change the word challenge to disruption? And for me, disruption doesn't land really comfortably. So if I click on disruption on thesaurus.com, I get a new bank of words. And for me, shake feels a little bit better, but not quite. So I click on shake. Move on the next set of words feels a little bit better, but not quite. So I click on move. And then I see a word that says advance and advance feels really good. Like I want to advance conversations. I want to advance healing. I want to advance, uh, you know, healthy integration with human beings. I click on the word advance and every synonym on the bank of words for advance feels really safe, really healthy and very approachable. And I can take that same bank of words for synonymously relating to advance, put that in place of when I talk about my experience with eight spaces and carry an exact conversation with someone who is specifically driven towards challenge, disruption, and conflict. So it allows me to have a translation tool that a strong eight energy, which I am not at all, even though I'm 6'2", 275, I have a beard, and I look very, very, very big and intimidating. I am not an eight energy. It's not my, it's not my strong suit, uh, pun intended. Mm. But I can sit down with somebody <laughs> who is an unhealthy eight, and understand that what they're trying to accomplish with their words is actually what I'm trying to accomplish with my words. And now we have common ground. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. It reminds me of, I think one of the the first times that we were doing a conversation around the Enneagram for this show, I texted a couple of friends and asked, you know, Hey, what, what questions would you have for this person? And uh, one of the questions I got texted back was, well, what, what do you do if you don't like your type? Hmm. Right. And that says something about like, well, that feels then somebody took the test and they feel like, okay, this is kind of limiting and things like that. Right. As opposed to this is just, I mean, I even just then when you were talking, you talked about kind of the nature and the motivation and the Mm -hmm. gifting as opposed to 
the what, right? Like, I think we see these things yeah. of, you know, a two, uh, you should do these jobs, right? Which is the what of it, which yeah. I think, you know, in the last episode you talked about, if someone is using something kind of reductively or simplistically, then maybe don't listen to them. But getting yeah. at kind of the why, the motivation, right? Because you could, I mean, we, so all of us here identify most strongly with type two mm-hmm. and we do a variety of different things, right? Yeah. Holly really loves research. I don't do pretty much any research. I do kind <laughs> of in, in, right? so like it's playing yeah, out yeah. in ways as opposed to, okay, well, if you're a two, then you have to do these things, right? So right. I think that kind of the why yeah. and that freedom to switch up the words is is definitely important. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's also one of the things that I see that really heavily relates to this or correlates with this is what happens in a clinical setting is so often somebody will come in with a diagnosis instead of a diagnostic. And what I mean by that is they'll have somebody do a particular exam or assessment on them, which is what people are doing with the Enneagram. They'll take that result and they'll make it their identity. So now all of a sudden somebody is a migraine patient, somebody is depressed, somebody is homeless, right? And those are not states of being, they're descriptions of experiences. So moving from definition to description is really important, but also shifting from saying I am a number on the Enneagram or I have this in terms of my, 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 this is my nature or my state of being like versus saying I am depressed or I have depression. You say, I experience depression. And that reframes the brain's experience of going, well, how permanent is this? Especially if it's unhealthy. Um, But then also shifting the conversation that if somebody doesn't like their type, there's a high probability that they've been introduced to the unhealthy or deficit-based side of that space. And until there's an opportunity to see it as something viable and life-giving, it doesn't feel approachable. In fact, it feels unsafe. And this is why I strongly, strongly uh, reject the idea of somebody knowing their number when they're embarrassed or they're shamed, because it will create a negative limbic attachment where the brain actually decides Mm. I need to avoid that environment. And if I learn that I am this unhealthy person and I associate that, it's powerful. And then every time that I go back to do my own inner self-work and I encounter any language associated with my primary expression of who I am, my subconscious system is going to resist the encounter because it thinks, based on my first experience, that it's unsafe. So it'll naturally, and in a helpful way, try to avoid it because Mm. I thought that that was painful. And now you're telling me you want me to engage in the pain. And then you have this conflict internally about masochism because you're like that our encounter with that wasn't safe. And you're telling me to continually go back there. I don't want to get hurt again. But if we learn about the Enneagram in terms of saying, I'm not saying that because you have the capacity for nurturing the motivation of appreciation and the gift of unconditional love that you are exercising that in a healthy way. I'm saying that you have the you have a natural inclination for that. But Mm -hmm. start with assuming there's a potential for being whole. And this is why in the book I talk about this is not about being less broken. It's about becoming more whole. Because most of the time, I think the short answer is when somebody doesn't like their type, someone told them as a diagnosis who they were and who they were was broken. And that does not feel safe. Mm, Yeah. I'm so glad that you made that connection to thinking about um, when we identify our number in shame and what that attachment to our limbic system does and how that how hard that is then moving forward in trying to navigate this 
from a space of healing. But there were a couple of points that you had mentioned a little bit before, and I think this ties into what you were just talking about too. But one thing that I know Robert and I have both talked about is that our ready scores, when we took it, so we both took it like, oh gosh, like I think it was like back over the summer. And then we took, retook it again recently when we were going to talk with you. And, uh, and our core numbers, you know, those remain the same. But it was interesting to see some of the numbers below that shifted a little bit. And so I'd be curious a little bit about, you know, potentially why those numbers had shifted or if there's, if you have kind of some sure. understanding about why that would happen. But then also tying in with that, thinking about, you know, once we, if we do take the test, which I know some people say, take the test. Other people are like, oh my gosh, no, don't take the test. And there's various reasons for all of that. But when we do take it and we can identify what our higher numbers are and what our lower numbers are, I'd also be curious if you could talk a little bit about like, what do we do knowing those higher numbers and those lower numbers and kind of what that means for us? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great and it's a comprehensive question. We can definitely answer Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I threw in a no, lot. No, you're, one, you're okay. Yeah. No, that's all right. Uh, that's all right. I, I can hold all those faces and try and tie it back in. It's uh, totally okay. Um, you know, I think first off, um, anybody who is wholly opposed to taking a test in order to get your number, I am 100% in agreement with you. Because if you take a test to just get your number, you are going to consistently be fighting some real confusion about whether or not it's relevant because it's, it's just way too reductive. But people who throw the test out entirely are like what happens for me when I encounter clinicians who don't want to rely on any objective data or any objective results to inform their management or their care or their pursuit of a whole healthy patient or client. It's a both and then some situation. It's too binary to pick a side on that. So when you take a test and you I think, obviously, there's confirmation bias, so I'll be transparent about this. I think the methodology that's set up in doing a whole identity profile that's explained in in the way that I do it is a far more comprehensive way to examine a human being and allow that information to inform your expertise as a therapist or a coach or a clinician or a human being, um, that the test doesn't become the answer. It becomes the information that you interpret. But you have to still understand what your motivations are, and that's the gift of the narrative tradition and a lot of the other approaches like Diamond and other spaces. Uh, And if you really dig into it with a lot of the people who have made the test, even Russ Hudson and the Enneagram Institute and the late Don Richard Riso, when you sit down, they'll explain that there's so much nuance, but they're using the test as an on-ramp. And unfortunately, a lot of people have used it as a a kind of a... a (laughs) a stereotypical caricaturization of a human. So let's let's assume that we have to do all of that. Um, but I agree with both sides. If it's not used in healthy ways, it's not helpful. Um, but that being said, when I showed you guys both of your stacks, both of the ways that you look at the whole results and we, we see kind of what's prioritized and what your motivations are, um, in order to understand why some of the numbers may change, and especially what the relationship is with the middle numbers in terms of flux or change, it's important to come back to the idea that we're really dynamic and we're really organic and we change and we may not have significant changes without significant trauma or significantly life-giving events, but we're dynamically changing on a regular basis. Uh, and when we see some of these fluid changes in terms of the numbers, we're not talking about, you know, 50, 60, 70% changes. Oftentimes we're talking about three to five to six to 7% changes, which is pretty normal 
people can see their weight change anywhere from 5 to 10% over the year. Uh, we just don't tend to think that that applies to mental and emotional or relational spaces. We tend to assume that the only space that will uh, that will change to any real significant measurable degree is the physical body, which isn't true. The, the brain science shows that that's not true. But that being said, let me give you kind of a, a, a three bullet point example, and then I'll, I'll drill into the into the, the middle numbers. But if you look at the results on, for instance, the Ready, which is from the Enneagram Institute, and or you were doing some sort of um, Enneagram interview with a narrative tradition or diamond approach, and they said, okay, these are what we find to be more important and these are less important. However, the orientation goes in terms of priorities. The numbers that are the most important that you pursue are the numbers that you are more attached to and more dependent on. So you have attachment styles that are dependent, you have things that you're pursuing, things that you're intentionally trying to reinforce, and you have a reward loop connected to those top numbers, so you need them present to some degree. They have to be in your life. The bottom numbers are more associated with avoidant styles or things that you're trying to minimize in terms of how often you have them in your life because you don't have a lot of lived experiences that say that's rewarding. Or you definitely have experiences that go, that's legitimately risky, and I don't want it in my life. So the top numbers you're dependent on, the bottom numbers you're avoiding. The middle numbers are more of a pivot point. So if you think of it like a seesaw, and you've got things that are going up and things that are going down, your top numbers are the ones you want to keep up, the bottom numbers are the ones that you want to keep down, the middle numbers are more of a pivot point. And you can rotate around those and change position around those. And it can change over time because I think what I've found is that if you encounter a really healthy version of your middle numbers, anything that's really between 12 and 18 points on the ready, if you encounter a healthy version of that, it can be profoundly catalytic for your top numbers. It can be really supportive of the top numbers. But if you feel like you encountered an unhealthy version of that, you can cause a withdrawal response or, or a negative risk response really quickly. So the middle numbers can be either beneficial or detrimental. They can be positive or negative. They kind of don't have as much of a consistent good or bad experience. They can be both. But the top numbers, you definitely are trying to keep present, and the bottom numbers, you don't need or definitely are trying to keep absent. And there tends to be a little bit more of a polarized experience in terms of lived experience for somebody and their top numbers and their bottom numbers, but the middle numbers are not as polarizing. And the metaphor mm. is also literal in that space. Yeah, mm. no, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, and just thinking about our conversation when we were unpacking the different numbers, that makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I remember one thing that you had noted in our conversation too was um, certainly around how those higher numbers were, you know, we're, we just tend to be more efficient in them. And then with the bottom numbers, we tend in some ways, like those can zap our energy a lot more quickly. And I thought that was actually really helpful thinking about that and seeing those bottom numbers so that I know like, hey, when I'm spending more time in seven space or eight space during the day, then perhaps maybe I <laughs> maybe I need to give myself a little bit more grace in the evening for whatever it is, um, just because of how much energy it's drawing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, just then, I mean, you were even talking about, right, the middle numbers, but then the bottom numbers being like things that we tend to avoid, right? Like those types of things. And so I did want to ask in terms of, because obviously your model says, okay, you have the capacity for all nine of these, right? And when you do the percentages using your model, they the yeah. gaps look less like kind of dramatic. 
which I think is helpful. But in terms of if someone's listening and they say, okay, I theoretically believe that, but what do I do with those low numbers, right? And I mean, you're welcome to use me as as an example if that's helpful because you had said some things about my like kind of body gut triad that was really low Mm -hmm. in terms of if you boost that, then everything else will also boost, right? So maybe you can work in the SWOT analysis that's in your book, but in terms of how do we improve kind of those things given that we tend to avoid them? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the, the easiest metaphor or picture that I've found for folks to go, oh man, this is way more approachable than I thought. Cause sometimes it can feel so esoteric. And when you do a lot of work around this, it can feel really intangible or impractical. Um, so I'm going to give kind of a couple of open-ended um, questions that are really helpful. I think for, for folks to be able to to ask some questions and, and see where those questions lead. Um, and the, the metaphor to kind of orient to is if you were going to develop a muscle in real life, what would you do, right? If you're going to develop an actual muscle in your body, it has to be exercised. You're going to say, okay, can I do it on my own? Do I need support? Do I need a community? Am I doing it with one other person who's a personal trainer? Am I doing it in a group setting where there's a larger community and it's a group exercise? Am I doing it on my own? You know, those questions are related to internal and external spaces of am I doing it by myself? Am I doing it locally with other people? Or am I doing it globally in a larger community? Because your brain processes in internal, local, and global spaces. So it's different. And I'll come back to that in terms of the questions that I, I recommend. But when you go to do a workout, as you're going through it, If it's the first time you've encountered it, you don't have a gauge yet on what your stamina is and what your fatigability is and what your rate of burnout is or what your rate of of strength is, right? So you know going into it that there's probably going to be a degree of sweat and a degree of, of fatigue and a degree of discomfort and a degree of soreness, but we can all agree that we're trying to avoid trauma, right? So trying to figure out what's comfortable and uncomfortable. But the easiest way to look at how you engage in something practically when you're developing muscle is how strong does the workout need to be? How intense is it? How often do I need to exercise that particular real estate? So what's the frequency of my workouts? And then how long does the workout or the exercise need to last? That's the duration. And when you look at trying to get an, uh, an outcome that's really effective, you have to look at intensity, frequency, and duration. How strong is it? How often does it happen and how long does it last? That equation not only applies to how we exercise something, but that equation is also really effective for helping to answer questions around why we may be breaking down or dealing with symptoms or dealing with mental, physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual challenges in our lives. Like, have I had intense encounters around that environment? Has it happened often? Has it lasted a long period of time? And is there a combination of those things that have created disease or disappointment or discomfort or even trauma? So that same equation not only allows you to find the solution, it also helps you to evaluate the problem and kind of get a gauge on that. So when we know those pieces about strong, often, and long, uh, then you can look at any space on the Enneagram and ask yourself the question, what does an actual practice look like in this space? What does an exercise look like in this space? And there's three ways that you can ask that. You just change the subject. So for instance, for me as a two, and for us on the call as a two, what does a practical exercise or what does an 
active practice of self-care mm. look like for myself? That's a very different question than saying, do I have a frame of reference outside of myself of someone I am in relationship with that practices self-care well, that I would like to model? Or if I don't have it in myself and I don't know anybody locally, is there someone in the world globally external to my own relationship with myself or close relationships to me, is there anyone I know that effectively practices self-care? So now you look at it going, okay, well, the, the reason I say that is the struggle for twos most of the time is self-care. They're really good at unconditionally loving people and nurturing other people and being able to have that, that idea of building value. But the two is a what's known as a dutiful or an obligatory stance, which is a Hornevian mm. stance. There's tons of different ways to look at that. They tend to try and move towards people and support people. They, they're really, really good at support, but it's not an internal space. They're focused on other people. They're not focused on themselves. So asking a practice-based practical question around what's not naturally going to happen for a two lets you go, even in my most efficient numbers, I really, really, really know how to exercise my two space. I'm efficient in it. That doesn't mean that I practice okay. it in my own life. So one of the things that's helpful is to go, is, it, is this question about myself? Is this question about people who I'm in close relationship with? Or is this question about everyone else? Is this question internal? Is it local? Or is it global? And if it's a low number, and for instance, my lowest number is a five, which mm. throws people off a lot because <laughs> fives generally mm -hmm. write, write the type of book that I wrote and are very keen on research. But to give a practical example, um, I had to hire someone to manage the scheduling and the concierge side of the practice. And also I had to hire someone to do my taxes because I don't like doing anything related to a spreadsheet <laughs> or a data analytic kind of space. I love love to mm -hmm. learn new things yeah right i we love to, yeah i heard the clap i i yep. love the idea right if i investigate and here's the way that people understand there's a the difference between a two and a five and a two that leans into five or uses five yep is what's the goal <laughs> somebody who's efficient in a five is not going to use that information mm -hmm. for anybody else but themselves it's actually healthy for them to get outside of their own data set and use it outside of themselves. A two, generally speaking, somebody who's efficient in a two is only securing and investigating that information for the purpose of using it to benefit someone else or themselves. They have a relationship with that data being oh a God. useful tool, but it's not the purpose. It's not the, it's not the end. It's not the outcome, right? The subject is different. My subject is person. For somebody who's efficient in five, their subject is data. That's what matters the most. It's the subject matter that matters the most. So when I look at that, if I'm looking at two, sometimes it can be really helpful for me to go, when's the last time that I sat and practiced information gathering without the goal of benefiting someone else? I I'm can't just going even to put this right now. Investigate. <laughs> Oh, I know, right? <laughs> When's the last time that I sat? And if you look at the intensity and the frequency, I'm not saying that you guys are having an intense response to even the idea of this, but you're having an intense response to the idea of it. But the, the thing is, is how often do I do that? And how long can I do it for? 
because then we start to eliminate all of these potentials for shame because I just had a conversation with somebody who everybody assumes is four. That's their most Hmm. efficient. And four is one of their lowest. And I'm looking at them going, when's the last time that you practiced sitting with someone else in their pain and not trying to fix it? Or when's the last time that you sat in the depth and the intimacy of your own lived experience and didn't try to create some sort of nuance to mitigate or, or neuter or, or introduce levity into the situation to minimize the pain? You just sat in the depth of how difficult and how painful that is. Because somebody who's high in two, which is all of us, and this person who wasn't as high in four, which is also me, I have high two and low four. The difference between practicing compassion in a two and a four is that a four is able to constantly look in the mirror and see their own pain. They're so intimately familiar with the depth of their own experience because they know the beauty in it and what it took to get there. But sometimes they can also end up with a narcissistic approach because all they see is themselves and all they see is their own issue, right? That's very different in terms of their capacity to sit with somebody and not be scared of how heavy that can be because they've developed a profound amount of stamina and strength at sitting in really deep spaces. But a two, by comparison, whether they're a a social or any of the subtypes, which we won't go into for the sake of time in this conversation, but no matter what version of a two shows up, if anybody's curious about, well, I feel like I exercise compassion, I can sit with somebody who's hurting. The difference in a two and a four with compassion is a two will fidget and will break a sweat and will become very uncomfortable if they have to sit in an environment where someone is hurting and they oh my gosh, cannot preach. do anything about it. They have to be pre- they have to, they have to be present to it, but the healthy two also knows mm-hmm. that's not mine to pick up because I don't have the energy, I don't have the space, and also I haven't been invited and been given the permission to do that. That's a very different space for a two to go, how can I practice self-care and self-compassion by learning what hurts in my own body and in my own heart and in my own mind so that I don't abdicate my self-work by checking in with someone else and trying to fix it because I'm not actually being compassionate and being service-oriented. And those are two very different things. So you make it a simple question of going, how am I practicing compassion? Do I understand compassion? How am I practicing self-care? So if you go through all the nine numbers, quick, I'll give it to you and then we'll come back to a question. But a two, a practical application is saying, I'm really good at taking care of other people. How do I practice self-care? A three is saying, I'm really, really good at being confident in other spaces. Who am I confiding in? That if they knew who I was, they wouldn't abandon me for it and they'd still believe I'm successful if they knew who I truly was. Because confidence, the root word of confidence is to confide. So a practical application for a three is to have a confidant they can confide in because they don't go into an internal space. It's more difficult to do that. So that's a practical relational space to to leverage their gift of confidence, but be confident in how they can confide in a confidant, right? It's alliteration, but it's also a practical application. Then four, really good at compassion. But one of the things that a lot of fours really struggle with is being compassionate with themselves, but also compassionate with other people. And sometimes a compassionate thing to do is going, how are there times where I need to stop exercising the need for someone to see what I'm working through and maybe taking a break 
from the exercise of relational depth would be beneficial for other people. So I can, I can be compassionate with my, with my local and global relationships, my close relationships and everyone else. And by doing so, allow myself to exercise self-compassion as well. So how can I change? I think sometimes the, the analogy that I use with a four is a four is so gifted at the exercise that they're in that they run a race that they anticipate everybody else can run emotionally and everybody else is fatiguing and then they wonder why they're on their own. It's not because they did something wrong. It's because they have a stamina that other people don't. So being compassionate for other people and themselves is sometimes bringing the intensity and the duration down. So it doesn't have to be as strong or as long, but maybe you figure out what it looks like to, to do that at a different rate, you know, kind of like, kind of like a workout. So the five, they're always so gifted at clarity and finding out information, but what it is, is their gift is insight. So when's the last time that they stopped, got out of the bunker that is their own mind and clarified, is what I'm seeing real? Right. Clinically, it's actually interesting that an unhealthy five has a lot of schizoaffective components, a lot of a lot of Asperger's components. I think that's where most of that clinical kind of experience lives. And the reality for a five oftentimes is they don't know what's real and they're having paranoia or they're having these these thoughts. So they're having a racing mind. That's a really unhealthy version. Right. That's an extreme. But a five can leverage their gift of clarity and insight by pausing and going, do I understand what's real? And do I understand what's real in my environment? Because I tend to be insular. I tend to have my own internal dyna dynamic and dialogue. Um, and I need to be able to, to, to test that and make sure that I'm, I'm properly evaluating what's real. So when's the last time that I practiced getting outside of my own head, right? Because mm. the five is quintessentially in its head. Six can practice saying, man, I'm really gifted at courage. But when's the last time that I allowed myself to sit down and say, when have I exercised courage? When have I seen myself effectively carry some really difficult things? And do I trust and believe that I can do that? Do I have data that says that there is a guarantee that when I respond this way, that it does go well for me? Because a lot of the times the struggle for the six is they're exercising so efficiently in the need to make things stable and in the need to forecast, and in the need to exercise courage, that they forget to stop and reflect on the times that they actually succeeded in that. And their exercise is simply to reflect on what they've actually succeeded in sometimes. To be able to go, no, I have actually exemplified courage. It's just, I don't think that about myself because I'm focused on other people and what they need. The six and the two have some mm -hmm. commonality there because they're dutiful stances, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're trying to take care of people. The seven... The seven is, is exercising inspiration. So a really practical thing for sevens is almost every seven and eight that I know hyperventilates, especially sevens, because they're inspiring all the time too much. So a practical exercise for a seven is really, really good breath work. And in fact, the seven, eight, and three are all assertive or, or gas pedal kind of energy inducing spaces. So for a seven, eight, and three, a really practical exercise is just to say, what does it look like for me to slow down? What does it look like for me to take a deep breath? Literally, you know, the eight is very good at being assertive. They're very good at exercising their own strength and their own capacity because generally speaking, anybody who's strong in eight has had a lot of practice and a lot of exercise at dealing with disruption and change and conflict or tension. And they know what it feels like to be in spaces that are heavy, right? Um, so for an eight, looking at that and going, okay, I'm naturally oriented to the growth, and I have the natural you know, gift of independence, when's the last time that I stopped and, and said, 
am, are the things that I'm growing what I want to grow? And in my process of growing things, how has it impacted other people? Because eights don't generally tend to focus on, on that. They're focused on getting the job done, moving the things forward, advancing the conversation and, and changing things. They're, they're disruptive first movers in spaces, right? So in that process, the practical application is to be able to go, how has this impacted other people? And in a body-based space, what does it look like for me to do a physical body exercise that does not increase my heart rate? Because eights are always going to have the heart rate up, they're energetic numbers. So for an eight to do an exercise like a sit or a breathing meditation or a yoga that decreases their heart rate rather than increases their heart rate, Another really good one for eights, eights are power-based numbers. So for them to do something that requires more finesse than power is very, very strange. So getting an eight to be more focused on like Tai Chi or Qigong than Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, or you know uh, something that's going to be more intense exercises like CrossFit. I'll meet a lot of eights that are in CrossFit, and what they're doing is they're exacerbating the issue of their heart rate being up, and they're reinforcing a system that's already efficient. But if they go and do Tai Chi and they do breathing exercises, and they lower their heart rate, and they focus more on finesse-based movements, it's amazing how quickly it lowers that fight-or-flight response and the intensity for them to be so provoked so easily because they're efficient at being excitable. So sometimes taking the foot off the gas and being more focused on finesse and rest is actually super helpful from a physical standpoint. But that's completely different than a nine because nine energy is efficient at rest. They're efficient at withdrawal. They're efficient at keeping their foot on the brake. So where an eight needs to slow down, a nine, similar to a four and a five, because nine fives and fours are all withdrawal stances. They tend to keep their foot on the brake or keep things slow. That one of the things that you can see in a nine, especially four and five, but a nine physically, is what does it look like for me to do something that allows me to increase my heart rate and do something that is a physical activity that allows me to be more energetic so that when I get into a conversation with another per person relationally and my heart rate goes up physically, it doesn't cause me to have a trigger because I know that when my heart rate goes up, my body can handle it. But most nines or people who are efficient in nine, regardless of their subtype, when their heart rate spikes, their body automatically throws an alarm bell and starts to say that there's a, th there's a threat level here that's higher than I'm comfortable with. But if they do physical body-based exercises that allow their heart rate to go up and they're in control and they're engaged, it makes their physical system more familiar with what that experience of adrenaline and cortisol is so that when they get into relational spaces or they get into spaces that push them intellectually and they feel, in, they feel incompetent or incapable, their confidence goes up because their body's like, oh, this is okay. I can go from 60 beats a minute to 80 beats a minute and not freak out. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I'm giving you a lot. And then the last one, the one, you know, the, the one is an interesting space because the one I think straddles this, this conversation between trying to make everything right and trying to make everything balanced. They're balancing the equation, but they're so practical that ones don't need any more effort in the practical application, right? They're the exception to this practical application of what am I practicing kind of piece. Because oftentimes ones are so strong at being able to do an audit that they forget sometimes they're doing they're not doing an audit they're doing an autopsy mm. because they'll reflect on something and go it wasn't perfect so so throw it away start over kill it start over I killed it got to revive it the idea of it being perfect means that anything between zero and a hundred doesn't exist it's either or it's a very polarizing experience so the nuance for somebody in a one space specifically 
is connecting more with that head and that heart space uh, and going, what does it look like for me to understand what I'm feeling? And am I celebrating that? Like a, a, a one connects very heavily to a four space and a seven space. So you can also look at, practically speaking, both of the lines of integration, which are, are showing up in the whole image of the, of the Enneagram, which is a little bit more complicated. But to speak specifically to a one, because a one is a precision-based number, so I, I, I prefer to be a little bit more precise with anybody who's efficient in that number, is if a, a one allows himself to really sit with their own experience as a person and give themselves compassion and exercise that four space, which says, can I recognize my own individuality? And can I authentically allow myself to have compassion and that I am not perfect and that's okay? And it also doesn't mean that I'm broken. It means that I'm becoming whole and I'm reiterating who I am as a person and I'm evolving and that's beautiful and it's not completely responsible on me, but I can also engage and be a participant. But it's it's not solely my responsibility to do that. My body will help me and the world will help me. And then the seven going, have I taken the opportunity recently to celebrate anything that I've accomplished? Have I celebrated anything that I've actually done? Have I allowed myself the chance to take a deep breath and inspire and actually be inspired and say, has anything been life-giving, especially anything that I don't feel was done perfectly? Because if a one allows himself the opportunity to celebrate in a compassionate way and sit with the things that hurt in their space, which is very heavily tied to things being unbroken and being whole, it gives them the opportunity to start to exercise the space that says, if it's not perfect, it's wrong. And they move into the space of going, it's really, really powerfully effective. And it was actually the best that was possible. And we're going to try and do it a little bit different next time. But that doesn't come out of a place of shame. It comes out of a place of opportunity. When they have that dialogue and they allow themselves to see the opportunities that exist in the imperfections and in the space between, it actually gives their body a chance to not be so hypervigilant about perfection and precision. They allow themselves to see. And actually, it just came to me, sorry. Any Anyone who wants a visual metaphor for what their experience is as a person, look up yeah. Kintsugi. Um, Kintsugi is where they take beautiful pottery, they break it, and then they put it back together with gold. And it actually reinforces the pottery, makes it stronger, and makes it more beautiful. So the one spaces are the people that are going in their imperfections and in their brokenness are actually made more capable of strength and capacity to do what they uh, need to do in the world. Um, so Kintsugi, I think, applies to every human being, but more specifically uh, to ones, because there's no number that's more efficient and more effectively aware of their own imperfections than, than a one, but the one has to practice reframing whether or not that that is inappropriate. Yeah. Um, because appropriate and inappropriate is a really challenging relationship for, for one space. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that you made reference to that, though. I learned about that from Aaron Lochner's book, uh, Chasing Slow, when I read it a little, I don't know, a couple of years ago or so. Yeah. And hmm. I just, I'm really glad that you wove that in for the one. I think that's, that's perfect. I think that's, that's really good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll also I'll give a shout out right your the book that we have talked about last time and this time whole identity a brain based enneagram model for holistic human thriving it has this this SWOT exercise for each number that talks about promoting yeah. strengths improving weaknesses exercise opportunities and mitigating threats right so I definitely recommend people pick that up if they're looking for kind of some more 
specifics or things mm-hmm. like that. Agreed. Um, if you want to connect with Jerome further, you can connect with him at drjerome.com on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We'll have all those links. You can connect with me and Holly. I'll just say that because we have all those links in the show notes. Uh, Jerome, I know that you know just like a a week or two ago, you gave us some closing thoughts, but thinking about this conversation, any closing thoughts for our listeners today? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I may have mentioned the three to 5% growth the last time, but I think the thing that's coming mm-hmm. to mind for me is just keep coming back to the, the space of going, there's so much permission and there's so much opportunity in realizing all of this is new language. Every single time that we encounter into doing therapy or inner work, when we discover something, we were curious and we discovered something new, oftentimes our, our knee-jerk reaction as human beings to feel shame is about the insufficiency that we see. It's, I should have known how to do this. I, I'm an adult, and yet I still have these same rhythms and patterns and predispositions. But you know, one of the powerful things is most of the time, when I explain this to folks and they see it for the first time, even with you guys being in professional settings, this is new information for you. Mm-hmm. Anytime you encounter new language, giving yourself the opportunity to be curious and giving yourself the opportunity to be intrigued will actually neuter fear because you can't both be curious and afraid at the same time. The brain doesn't work that way. So if you allow yourself some curiosity and some intrigue, and you recognize that this is a discovery space. It will be a discovery space our entire life. And then when we become aware of something and we see new language, to realize that that is okay is really important. Because I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and my four-year-old has a lot more language than my two-year-old. But I don't look at my two-year-old when she realizes and she connects the dot for what thank you means, that she should have known how to say thank you up to that. I don't yeah. chastise her for not saying thank you when she's given something because she's still developing an understanding of the relevance of the simplistic nature of a thank you. Mm. But the key is, as a healthy parent, my job is not to chastise, intimidate, or shame her because she doesn't know the effective use of thank you or language or words. It's for me to recognize that for her, she's developing an awareness and an appreciation and an understanding for what those words even mean. And then she develops a strategy on how to use them. And then she develops a strategy on how to use them even better or more efficiently. So when everybody's going through the space and they get introduced to something that's a eureka moment or an awareness moment, or it resonates, or you're like, man, that feels super true for me. I really wanna encourage everybody to continually coming back to that space of gratitude and going, man, that is so good to know. I'm interested. Tell me more. I'm curious. Mm. Tell me more. Because what we're doing is we're actually learning about our own internal dynamics. This is the basics of internal family systems. This is the basics of inner work. As we discover what makes us tick and what makes us who we are, when it is exposed or when it is come, it, it comes to light or it's revealed for the first time, don't smack it back down. Give it a chance to go, thank you, welcome. I appreciate that information. I'm curious. Let's learn more about that. And then as you discover the, the, the extent of that encounter in that relationship, you can start to develop from a healthy perspective 
what you want to do in terms of how you lead your own body, mind, and soul into healthier arenas. But start with curiosity, start with intrigue. And when you discover something, approach it and welcome it with gratitude. It will shift the fear-based response that we have, and it will eliminate the shame that we have about being insufficient because this is new language and we would never do it to a young child if we were a healthy parent. So we shouldn't do it to ourselves as we reparent and we kind of regrow ourselves. Mm, oh my mm, gosh. That so good. is so good. Jerome, I'm so glad that we got to have you back on the show. Thank you so yeah. much yeah. for joining us and sharing your wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. It's always a gift. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.